Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Well, welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. I'm very honored to have as our guests today, uh, people who are responsible for the Be Better organization. This is Steve and Jill Miskelly. Steve and Jill, thanks so much for giving of your time and your energy today. Thank you for having us, Steve. Appreciate you guys helping us tell our story. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. So tell me a little bit about Be Better and how it got started. We started Be Better in uh, June of 2021 in memory of and honor of our son, Ian. We lost our son, Ian, to suicide in September of 2020. Uh, he was a 19-year-old young man. He was a, a brilliant young man. He was a remarkable kid, scholarship athlete at University of Michigan. When Ian died, we said, we're going to make something good come of this tragedy. We're going to, we don't know what, but we're going to do something good. From that, we took some inspiration from the words my brother actually gave during a eulogy for Ian. And he said, Ian made us better by knowing him. That was his greatest superpower. So be better. Make his memory matter. And that became sort of a call to action for us to say, you know what? How are we going to do that? How are we going to be better? And pretty soon, be better became our rallying cry. And, and from there, we started trying to put together some things. What do we want to do? What do we want to try to help people with? Who are we trying to help? What are we trying to do? And it really just sort of grew organically from there. So right away, we just talked about our experiences with Ian. So he had started, he was about 11 years old that he had him really, well, we had noticed that he really was struggling with mental health. So Mm -hmm. around that age, we got him into counseling and went to see a psychiatrist, was on medication. And he went and saw his therapist or a therapist at least once a month until he was moved to University of Michigan here in Holland. He did that. And then after that, the athletic department at Michigan was fantastic. He could see his counselor, his therapist as much as he wanted. But what we noticed, it was kind of too late. Ian had already learned, I guess, how to answer certain questions in the system, how, you know, how, how to not tell certain people certain things. And I'm not blaming him, um, but he was a little kid or he was a teenager. So looking back at what kind of what happened with the, the system of care for him, we noticed a huge gap in the fam- the family, the parents, the, his sister, who's two years older than him, being involved in his care and being really just in the know of what was going on. And there were so many times that we felt really that we weren't being listened to in terms of what was going on with Ian, um, really not given the tools that we needed to help him every day, um, because although he did have therapy and he was in counseling, um, you know, it wasn't ever obviously every single day. And we, we couldn't, we didn't really know what to do in between appointments. Um, we really didn't even know what questions to ask because as, you know, as a, as a kid, it's really hard to try to diagnose and figure out exactly what's happening, you know, anyway, what we really wanted to do was be better after we kind of mashed through it for a while was beyond mental health stigma is really helping the families and helping the support system and the support network of the person that is struggling, also the person, but just trying to to wrap the services around everybody and fill those gaps in services. Like if you want to give an example, or you're talking a lot. One (laughs) one example of that, just an extreme example, if you will, Jill took Ian to the emergency room one time because he was in crisis. And um, they were there for about six hours. And after that time frame. You know, they didn't really do anything while they were there. It was just more of a kind of an observation, which is, you know, which is, which is typical. Oh yeah. 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 At the end of the six hours, 
the emergency room said, okay, I think, you know, we've deemed you're not a, a danger to yourself or others. We're going to discharge you. But before we can discharge you, you have to set up an appointment with Holland Behavioral Health. And then they handed Jill a list of therapists to call to get an appointment. And it's like, here you go. And so you spend an hour just going down the list until you find an, a, a therapist who's taking appointments. And then you say, okay, when can I get in? Well, we have an appointment uh, in six weeks. Right. Demonstrates right there the extremity, the, the gap that we're talking about. If someone's in crisis today, they need an appointment today or tomorrow, not six weeks from now. How do we, how do we bridge that gap? Because the other thing was, and again, not, not their fault, but yeah, this no. is kind of how the system works mm-hmm. today. Jill said, okay, so what do I do between now and six weeks from now when he has an appointment? Just watch him. And, and if he has another crisis, uh, bring him back here. Mm-hmm. To do what? This again? Right. And, and that's that's the point that we're trying to make is those are the gaps that we're trying to fill is how do you how do you provide some continuity of care, even if it's just answering questions, even if it's just providing tips on here's what you can say, here's some things you can do. Right. And to be able to get through that period and not just me searching the Internet for hours. He was also at the school that I taught at since he was in fourth grade. So I saw him a lot <laughs> and I could also tell, you know, good day, bad day or whatever. So I'd see him and right after school bring him over to his swim practice. And then I know when I got home, I had about two hours to try to figure out what I was going to do, depending on how his mood was. So frantically searching the internet. Okay. looks like this looks like that. Should I say this? What do I not say? Like, what am I supposed to be doing? You know? And it was, it would be so much easier and more effective and less stressful for everybody. If I was able to just text or call somebody and say, Hey, this is how it's going today. Like, and you, you know, as an example, you know, Ian, maybe this person's been involved the whole time. What should I do? What should I say? Or am I overreacting? Or, you know, what what do you think? I need, I need some support. I need some help instead of just panicking and then not really knowing what to do. And, you know, and on top of that, I was, I said, I was a teacher. So I had so many classes that I took on mental health, um, mainly mm-hmm. because my son struggled and because I was pretty passionate about it. So I was, part of this mental health in our, at our school. So it wasn't like, I didn't know what to say in terms of crises or like you follow these certain steps or like, Oh, say, ask these questions, but it just really isn't, isn't quite enough. I don't even know how to explain this when you're the parent in the crisis, just saying, are you going to hurt yourself? That's just really not what you're looking for. You're looking for more guidance and just say, what am I doing wrong? Or what should I be doing? Or, Hey, third party, what do you think? So that's something that we also have is this wrap around with our mental health director, where he really just gets right with the person has a small team, which includes the family and everybody knows what's going on. So it's, it's really kind of, it's like a third party, not a therapist, but like a team captain or team leader that's able to bring everybody together around this person that can not only have expertise, answer questions without having to wait weeks or be charged for questions walk, you know, actually drive. We have had this show up at Pine Rest and be with the family, just, just mm-hmm. different services. So they, the family and the person doesn't feel like they're alone. Cause we, there were so many times we felt like we were just treading water and didn't know what we were doing. So. Yeah. I think part of the challenge for parents who, so our oldest uh, is 
diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. Um, this yep. this year was her first year away at school. She was on the east side of the state. She's in Detroit. We had the benefit of having an arrangement with her where she had given us permission to have you know access to her records. There are some parents whose children don't get access to their records. What what do you say to parents who are just feel paralyzed because they they know their kid enough to know that they need help. They aren't an expert in the field enough to know what kind of help to offer. Their kids out of out of reach geographically and isn't sharing all of the data that they need to help do informed care. What what do you say to parents that are in that spot? Well, we were in that spot for a period of time, believe it or not. Um Okay. For for whatever reason, we we would have these conversations at the end and he'd say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll I'll make sure you guys have permission." but the paperwork never got signed. It never got processed. Okay. From that standpoint, you know, your kid best advocate for your kid, take charge. That's, that's the advice I would give barge in. Um, yeah. It doesn't matter. So mm-hmm. eventually what I ended up doing is I called this therapist directly. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I said, I, I realize you, you maybe can't tell me legally, but here's what I can tell you so that you can provide him care. Gotcha. And I told him my perspective. I told him what we saw going on. I told him what we felt was happening. I told him the the piece of the puzzle that we could fill in. And he found that very helpful, even though he would go back to Ian and say, hey, by the way, weren't you going to give your mom and dad permission to talk? Oh, yeah. yeah. I forgot. Yeah. And yeah, it never in happened. That, in that case, yeah. But you know your child the best. Advocate for your child. And, and if there's something you feel in your core that isn't right, push. Push until somebody comes in and slaps handcuffs on you to say you can't do that. Yeah. Pushing a little bit for us, but have them contact us Yeah, because our mental health director has dealt with that issue and he goes right. He is outright straight with the kid and just says, Hey, you know, everybody needs to know what's going on. Like what's, what is going on that, you know, we can't have, they can't have access or he knows how to get kind of get around and try to figure out how to solve that problem. Cause it's, it's true. If you've got somebody that's away at school and they won't give you access, I mean, there's gotta be maybe a third party person that can just talk that kid into it and say, you know, mm-hmm. your parents are not, I know he, uh, his name is Dr. Brashears. He even said it to one time, one time to one kid. He's like, your parents aren't being nosy. They love you. They're not trying being to overpower, or overpower you. you, but they're worried about you. They love yeah. you. Does that make sense to you? And the, the one kid said, yeah, actually you're right. It does. You know, that was a little bit easy. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. No, I, I, but I love that you say that because there is, there is a very distinct difference between parents who are nosy and overbearing and controlling mm-hmm. and aren't giving their kids autonomy. Like that's, that's one thing um, to, to helicopter parent. It's another thing to, to your point, to be able to say, no, I know my kid and I know my kids in crisis. And this is not uh, an attempt to undermine their emerging adult authority. This is an attempt to, to fight for their life, to advocate advocate for, for their well-being physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had that exact conversation with his therapist and I said, you know, I'm not trying to be a helicopter parent here. I'm trying to fill in the gap. And he was appreciative of it Yeah, that's true. because of, of what was going on and, and some of mm-hmm. the things that, that we were able to talk about, at least he and I, and uh, I even gave him permission to tell Ian, this is what we talked about. And yeah. so we found that beneficial. I would certainly say those are the things that I would tell the parents advocate for your mm-hmm. child and, and don't be afraid. Um, tell your side of the story, make sure they understand that as to Joe's yeah. point, this is done out of love. This is not done out of control. We want to make sure that this experience continues and ends positively. 
So today, May is the first day of Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, you had talked about just your reference in passing, just a stigma around mental health issues. Where are you seeing that stigma lessening and where do you see it still in play? Uh, you know, I was in high school in the late 80s, early 90s, and I feel like we've come a long way since then, but I don't feel like we've made covered the distance that we need to. What, what What's your take on that? Yeah. I think that the the kids, I, I, kids, you know what I mean, like 20s, sure. <laughs> even, yeah are obviously way more aware than we were, yeah. <laughs> way more comfortable talking about it, um, have the the right words to use, um, where we really didn't have the right words to use at all. I mean, and also to have access to the acceptance of going to see a therapist or going to see a doctor is much better now. Right. Definitely. The stigma I see is still talk to parents that still feel uncomfortable if they say their kid is getting help. Mm -hmm. So it's not, I haven't found, and it could be because I was a teacher, high school teacher. I haven't found it with the kids because everybody talks about <laughs> going to get treatment and going to get care. And I'm going to go to this and I'm working on these coping skills. And they, they all, like I said, they know the words and it's just more of the parents are, Oh, my kid's going to be in a certain place for five days. I don't want anybody to know. So there's still that shame. stigma, almost a shame of, yeah. yeah especially, um, with athletic parents, like mm. you said, our son was an athlete that really you want to try to keep it like, Oh no, they're okay. They're, they're not going to talk to anybody. Cause I want to, I don't want them to get kicked off the team or they're going to lose their spot or something like that. So that's what I've noticed. How about you? I would, I would echo that. I think the, the younger generation, let's say mm -hmm. the, the 20 somethings and down are much more accommodating and much more even understanding yeah. uh, to the point where I don't think they they rush to judgment. I do mm -hmm. think our generation, the, you know, the 50 somethings and plus, because just like you said, we were in high school in the late 80s, right? There wasn't, mm -mm. it wasn't talked about. As a matter of fact, there, it was shameful back then. And yeah. a lot of times it was turned back around and, well, what are you doing as a parent? Why, why is your right. kid acting like right, this? Right, right, right. Or, or there's the, the opposite end of the spectrum. Well, if you just did this, trust me. If, if all you yeah. did, if you just did this, you, this kid just needs a good talking to this kid needs it. Run a lap. Everybody <laughs> wants to quickly yeah, solve yeah. the problem, problem. Yeah. without actually understanding the underlying mm -hmm. issues. So we still do have some of that, but not, that's, not that's so what much. I see. I think yeah, more I so, see that but not as much. Yeah. The kids, I think, thankfully the yeah. kids are much more understanding these days. And I think that's where we can build a lot of a grassroots sort of groundswell of support is to tap into that group and, and have them support each other. What do you say to parents who feel those, that kind of cloud of shame? Like, how do you, what, what do you say to empower them to slice through that, to be able to say, Hey, the, whatever reputation you're concerned about protecting doesn't, doesn't really matter in the, when we zoom out and look at the big picture, how, what, what do you say to parents? And again, I, I know every, this is not unique to West Michigan, but there is something about West Michigan that that tends towards like, Hey, we have to present this appearance that everything's buttoned up and that we've got yeah. it all on lock. I would, I would say, look, if your child had diabetes or if your child mm -hmm. had cancer, mm -hmm. there would be no shame in, in you going to the doctor and you going to get extensive treatment for that. And you sharing that story with your vast network, because you would want everybody to know, Hey, I have diabetes. So I need to do this during the day to make sure that it's under control. I got to avoid these kinds of foods. I got to take care of my body mm -hmm. in this way. I have to do that. And no one would question it. Yeah. 
Yet somehow, mental health, particularly depression, anxiety, if if it's severe enough, can be as yeah. as deadly. Sure. Yeah. And and yet somehow everyone wants it to be behind this veil of secrecy. It's like going to a confessional if you go into therapy. And right. so let's have a conversation with parents about, hey, this is every bit as important as your physical health and, and much more so in some cases. Why wouldn't you want to go get help? Why wouldn't you want to step aside and, and get your child the care that they need so that we can have a, a, a long, prosperous and meaningful life? that's how I would approach it. And that, that, mm-hmm. that tends to, when I have that conversation with people, it tends to, you see the light bulb go off. Yeah. Because someone's like, yeah, you're right. If they had cancer, no one would even question it. Yeah, of course he's got to go to his oncologist. Of course he's got to take medication. Mm-hmm. Of course he's got to rest. Well, he's got a mental il- illness. If you aren't fit mentally, you're not going to be fit physically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I read a book last year called The Anxiety Field Guide, and the author, Jason Cusick, was talking about how a lot of times there's not necessarily stigma around therapy, but in some circles, there's still stigma around medication, especially in certain communities of faith to be able to say like, hey, if you're really a person who's, you know, believes the right things, you shouldn't have to take meds. And he used a similar argument, Steve. He said, if I had a problem with my liver and meds could help me, I would take it and you wouldn't care. He's like, I've got a problem with my brain. My brain is an organ and I take, I take meds to help me with my brain. It doesn't, it doesn't mean I'm less than, it doesn't mean that I am not mentally capable of handling my problems. It doesn't mean that I don't believe in God or that I don't care about my well being. It, this is, this is a tool that can help me. And I love his analogy. He goes, not everybody who's on a certain dosage will be there forever. He goes, he used the water wings analogy. He's like, sometimes I need my floaties just to keep me from drowning. <laughs> And then as I learned to swim, I can get my way through it. I was talking to somebody the other week and he was having a major mental health crisis because he, he decided that he was just going to dictate his own weaning off of meds. And I think people don't understand. We have medical professionals who are, who have spent a lifetime learning what they have learned so that they can serve us. Um, and it's not, it's not on us to, to say, I know, I know better in the moment of crisis or in the moment of discomfort. Sorry. I, I feel like I'm speaking out of turn here. No, you're absolutely right. You're hundred <laughs> percent yeah. on target yeah. because that's, that's uh, part of the message we try to convey too, is that if, if you're unsure, come to us, help us, help us help you. We right. can answer your questions. We can guide you to the appropriate level of service and care. That's one of the things that I'm, I'm, I think most proud of that we've been able to do in the past 18 months is that we've been able to get people who, who felt like they were sort of at wit's end. They were, they were running into roadblocks all over the place, trying to get the care that they needed. They called us and we were able to, in multiple cases, within hours, either get them admitted to Pine Rest or get them set up with a, a long-term therapist or get them set up with the appropriate medication so that they could manage their way through a crisis and continue to learn how to manage their way through their, their mental illness. And they were so grateful. We've even had one mother sent, came back to us and said, I think you saved my daughter's life tonight. Mm. We said from the very beginning, if I can save one life, I will have accomplished our goal. And if we can save many, then it's a miracle. You know, going, yeah. And going back to, I was just thinking about what you just, obviously what you just said, but also with the medication, thinking about our journey with Ian. So there were many times that I thought, boy, you know, 
is that medication making him worse, right? Is he having side effects from the medication? So then there I go researching everything, trying, you know, you read like, oh, this could have this side effect, this could have this side effect. And then asking a question about it, but it's, you know, four months down the line when it's at or quarterly when it's with the doctor. So one thing that we've been able to do to help people is if you just have a basic, I don't want to say basic, but if I would have been able, I would have been able to call our Dr. Bashirs and say, Hey, I got a question about this medication. This is what he has for a diagnosis. This is what I'm seeing. I actually, I feel like it's not working. Like, you know, I don't even know what to ask my doctor. I have to wait. Should I get an appointment? Should I like, should I be writing down? You know what I mean? So just somebody to, to go through those questions with you. So you don't just cold Turkey. Yeah. Yank him off, so you don't right? do what you exactly what you said. About. I'm like, Let's... Nope, he's off, you know, cause I can't even imagine, but there are so many times that I just would have ha- liked to have somebody that I could say, Hey, we have a relationship. I can tell you exactly what I'm seeing. You can ask me some more questions so we can kind of dive in and figure out problem solve what's going on and talk to me about what I'm concerned about, about the medication. And uh, Dr. Bashir's has also done it where in between appointments. So people will call and say, Hey, I had an appointment and I don't see someone for a few more months or even a few more weeks. And this is what they said. I was diagnosed and he'll, he'll write out, tell them like, okay, I think we need to sit down and talk and make, you know, am I allowed to talk to your doctor? We've even had that because there's sometimes when you're diagnosed, if you're diagnosed with one illness, you actually can't be diagnosed with another one at the same time. It's different examples, but yeah. So there's just a lot of education that really needs to happen in terms of medication and diagnoses. And I'm kind of going off on a tangent a little bit, but just talking about the medication. Well, I we think the could point answer is, the questions. The point is help. come yeah. to us yeah. because we've got that level of expertise uh, to be able to answer those questions it. and at least calm your fears and concerns for the time being, or at least point you in a direction that says, here, here's a couple of things you can do. Here's a couple of people you can talk to. It's actionable stuff as opposed to, and I'm hey, here's a website. Yeah. Hey, yeah. here's a video you can watch. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of 10, we got a, a link or a video or even a spreadsheet or worksheet. Something. It went in the garbage or we never looked at it. Sure. Right. Sure. But but if I got, hey, here's someone that knows this, this, and this, and this is what you should call, and this is what you should ask them. Different story. Right. And then we then he follows up with the person in a few days. So it's right. that, oh, yeah, you're right. I didn't actually call. Okay. Like, you know, what can I do to help you? Like, do you need to, you know, so it's just that the yeah. follow-up to kind of get people moving so they don't feel so, like you said, paralyzed. So so what what type of parent or what type of scenario could benefit best from Be Better? Like what, what kind of clients are best equipped to benefit from your services? Well, the, it's an interesting question because we've had quite the spectrum of, of yeah. clients already, believe it or not. Um when we started Be Better, we were sort of kind of wandering around a little bit, trying to find our way and what who we really wanted to help, who we really wanted to benefit, to your point. And ultimately, what it came down to, Jill, Jill pointed it out earlier, and I think she was she hit the nail on the head. We want to help the young person, absolutely. We, we definitely want to help that young adolescent, 14 to 24-year-old, because of the danger of suicide in that age group. However, As important, if not more important, is the family and the support structure, particularly the parents. Mm -hmm. Because of what she described earlier, you would come home. She dropped my son off at at swim practice, saw that he had a bad day, would come home in a panic. Okay, I got two hours to figure out what are we going to do? I'll be better. 
stop by Be Better. Sit down and just talk to somebody for 15 minutes, get some ideas. We've had people call us on the opposite end of the spectrum. Hey, my my child's been in short-term care at Pine Rest. They've been there for whatever, four weeks. They're being discharged on Monday. I don't know what to do. Hmm. Call us. We've been able to orchestrate and put together a discharge plan. We've we've been able to then, uh, to Jill's point, follow up on those that discharge plan at seven days, at 14 days, at 28 days, just to make sure everything's going okay. So it's really that full spectrum. If, if you've got questions and, and you have immediate need right now for just tips or a couple pointers or something action you can take, all the way to let's put together a detailed plan for how to make sure this person gets a continuum of care that's going to service their needs uh, appropriately. Our answer is kind of everyone (laughs) (laughs) because we've also had phone calls or texts or emails that people said, you know, I'm just, I'm thinking that my friend, kid, whatever, it doesn't matter. Someone in my life needs help. This is what I'm seeing. You know, what kind of therapist would they need? Do they even need therapy? And, you know, we've talked through that and find out, you know, there's just a couple of things in terms of the family unit. Maybe you want to talk to be better about that. Um, Our director of mental health services has got a PhD in family counseling. Hmm. So so it's it's really been maybe because we're so new that it's just all over the place. So there's been very quick, easy questions. And that wasn't even a great example, but it was that. And then it was also up to the, actually, nobody will help us. I've got a severely mental illness. This was a teen. Nobody will talk to me. I can't get this person in anywhere. We were able were able to get that person into residential treatment. So it really varies, you know, to the extremes. But yeah, and then we've had another one where it's, as an example, someone called us and said, hey, my child just posted something really strange on social media and I'm upset and I don't know what to do. Should yeah. I be concerned? What do you think? And then our Dr. Bashirs is able to walk that person through exactly ask this question, ask this question. If these are your answers, you know, these are your answers. This is what we want to do. And then followed up. Yeah. So maybe on the opposite end of that, on the opposite side of that coin, if you have the courage to call me or walk in our door, I got you. Yeah. Doesn't really we, we matter. Got you. It doesn't really matter. We're, we're going to hold your hand yeah. through the process. Yeah. Well, I, I'm so grateful that that's your model because when you talk about getting a packet of therapists that's eight pages long, when your child is in crisis, you're already emotionally, spiritually, yeah. cognitively drained. You don't have time and energy to do due diligence. No, um, or, or to make decisions. Right. No, so like to have exactly. somebody say, Hey, we're going to tighten the focus. Here's steps A, B, and C. You don't have to take them, but this is our plan of recommendation. Mm-hmm. seems like it takes a lot of the, the, the angst and the guesswork out of it, especially when the stakes are as high as they are. Yeah. And I, I can tell you, we've, yeah. we've said multiple times, I, I wish we had be better when Ian yeah. was with us. This, yeah. this is exactly what we needed. And it, it is those times when we say, okay, as hard as this is, we're doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier about how sometimes the challenges that athletes have are unique Mm -hmm. and specific. And it seems like, especially when students perform at a very high level, there is an extra degree of pressure. Either they're trying to get into an elite program or they're trying Mm -hmm. to stay in an elite program, or they're trying to actually be the person who, who gets to race or gets to start or gets to compete. Does that pressure come from the athlete? Does it come Mm -hmm. from the coaches? Does it come from the parents? Does it come from the sport? Like I'm sure it's all the above, but what, why are the, 
how do you see the mental health challenges of top performing young athletes be different than the general population? I I would say this, that um, in the case of Ian, it was self-inflicted, if you will. And, and when you get to a certain level, right, if, if you have, if you truly have the ability for a D1 scholarship, let's say, no amount of parental desire living vicariously or whatever is going to ever be able to push you to perform to the level you need to acquire that, that level, right? You, no parent cheering from the sideline, critiquing your performance, coaching you is ever going to be able to outweigh the athlete's own desire to achieve. And I think at that high level, it is self-inflicted 95% of the time. And, And then you couple that with a propensity for depression or anxiety. Yeah. And it, it's a, it's a perfect storm. I, I even, I would even go on to say that if you are wired that way, let's say it's not athletes, let's say you, you're trying to make the school play and, and you have a, an incredible singing voice, but for whatever reason on audition day, something happened and you didn't get the part. Yeah. Then there's that, that doubt that gets sowed. And if, if you have any inclination toward depression, that, that seed of doubt takes root. And then the next time it's like, well, Maybe you're not as good as you are. Maybe others are better. Maybe other people deserve it more. And it becomes this terrible self-fulfilling prophecy. And well, again, that's why I say it's largely yeah, internal. And and also on top of that is, you know, part of having your identity is being a swimmer. I'm a mm-hmm. swimmer. I'm not, in terms of Ian, I'm not someone who swims. So it's a lot right. of work with the athletes in terms of their self-identity. So when yeah. they do have an injury problem or, you know, they're injured or they sure. under their career, they're done in, let's say in college, they make a decision to be done or even like their first year of college or in high school, a lot of it is, is identity and mm-hmm. kind of going through the, just talking about athletes. One of the things that we're offering, we just started now is called, we have an education series where we have different, um, education modules. And one of them is based is actually focused completely on this thing called athlete centered care. Mm. And it goes through all of the risks for athletes on top of everything else in being a a young adult or a kid, or, you know, even, you know, in their twenties. But yeah, it's, it is all of the above. Um, uh, Some of the kids, of course, you know, they're, they're worried about letting people down like anybody is, well, I'm supposed to be this fantastic baseball player. Everybody thinks I am. My parents, gave up so much for me. Now I'm not going to do it anymore. We've heard that from different college athletes, the kids that have talked about that. It's just such a complicated issue for them. Yeah. It's so hard. Well, I want to, I want to thank you for the amazing work that you're doing and thank you for honoring Ian well by telling a story. I remember hearing a podcast a couple of years ago where somebody was kind of revisiting the stages of grief. And, you know, they said, traditionally there's five stages and they said that they, they added a, an extra one which is called making meaning. And they say making meaning out of somebody's loss is to be able to say, we, we didn't choose this. We didn't want it. It's still a nightmare. We wouldn't wish it on our worst enemy, but if we can find, if we can extract meaning from it or pull mission or service out of it, um, that, that takes a little bit of the sting out. It gives us, it gives us purpose in the midst of our grief. And it sounds like you are 
are modeling that well in launching and running and optimizing Be Better. And I want to thank you for the way that you're serving uh, your community so well in Ian's honor and in his memory. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, that is profound. I'm I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna use that going forward. I had not heard that, but uh, yeah, that strikes a chord. Thank you for sharing that. How can people find out more about Be Better? How how can they support the work? Number one, our website, BeBetterHolland.com. Um, we we do give a, a summary of the services that we provide there. We give uh, the ability to donate. Um, we have a golf outing coming up here in uh, June 12th at Makatawa Golf Club. And so got a couple spots left for uh, for foursomes. If so, if you are so inclined, uh, we would love to have you. If if golf's not your thing, though, it's okay, too. Um, we're always looking for volunteers and donations of, of any size or sort. And so we certainly appreciate that. Um, I, I do want to make sure everybody understands we've we have been uh, also uh, the benefit or the recipient of um, a grant from the state of Michigan that's helped us do a lot of what we're doing. And so we've been very grateful for that. That has been a game changer for us. And so um, we're going to continue the, the efforts to renew that grant on an annual basis. Uh, but if there are folks out there who are experts in, in that field and, and uh, can point us in the direction of additional fundraising opportunities, we're always uh, willing to listen. So appreciate those opportunities as well. Stephen, Jill, thanks so much for your time to, today. Uh, look forward to seeing how God continues to use uh, your story and your organization to serve people who are in crisis. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.